giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here today with Derek Reimer. Hey, Derek. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. It's the most magical time of the year. As they say. Yeah. <laughs> Kids jingle belling and everyone telling you to be a good cheer. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you following instructions? Are you a good cheer? <laughs> I'm in, like, pretty good cheer, yeah. They installed, fingers crossed, as part of a holiday effort initiative, they installed speakers on the exterior of the buildings, including our office, oh or at least right next to our office. And so half of the office now hears Christmas carols piped in, whether they want them or not. Ooh, okay. And I'm hoping for everyone's sake that this is just like a thing they're doing to create holiday cheer and that it will go away after this <laughs> and um yeah it's not like a permanent we just thought there should be music here all the time yeah so you said it's on the inside of the building it's on the like... outside they attached it to like the exteriors oh interesting so okay. that people walking by through the you know area feel more you know something got it yep yeah music music in buildings has always been like uh point of contention in all the places I've worked mm -hmm. like the, the last building I was in there was a speaker system all throughout and uh you know they had whatever Pandora playlist they were they were playing and like there was like a building wide slack channel and like half the building was always complaining about the music and yeah some people were like right under a speaker and other people were Oof. 20 feet away from it it was rough That's, and then they yeah they recently tried uh there was like a vote in the lead pages office to uh certain people wanted just music playing uh, at a low level throughout the office all day long. And uh, I think the vote failed, but they tried it for like one day and there was kind of uproar. So <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my nightmare. Yeah, it's hard to please everyone. I feel like someone, you know, everyone's got a little bit different uh, preference on that. And some people don't like any music at all while they work. So right. Yeah, yeah for me, noise in general is pretty distracting from yeah. any sort of deep work and music in particular actually is almost the worst in a way. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because people will be like, what kind of music do you listen to? I'm like, I don't listen to that much music because I don't do it with as part of other activities. Right. I'm like, I'm going to listen to this song. And then I kind of just sit there and listen to the song. <laughs> Which, so you're a, you're a true music lover in the sense that you don't multitask it. You don't put it on the, the back burner. <laughs> most of the time, yeah. Sometimes yeah. I'll do a little like walking music kind of thing. That's, sure. that, that's fine. Yeah. But yeah, so we'll, we'll see if the, the speakers stick around. Okay. I have... A sinking feeling they will because once you install speakers outdoors like it seems like a lot of effort for just a holiday display but we'll see yeah the one thing that reminds me of i was listening to um i think it's podcast 99 percent invisible where they talk about design things that are all around you all the time that you may not be aware of mm -hmm. um that actually consciously designed and uh, one of the episodes was about i can't remember the name for it. it was like disruptive design or something like that or Basically, things that produce intentional inconvenience to coerce you not to do something. Like, yeah. like the example was like a, a park bench that some cities have put into park that makes it impossible to lay down on them. Mm -hmm. So you can only sit there. So it's like to, I guess, discourage homeless people from sleeping on the bench or something. Right. And one of the examples they used was this business that, for whatever reason, the location they were in caused a lot of people to congregate around there all the time. So it was just lots of young people hanging out. Mm -hmm. So to combat that they just started blasting really loud music outside of the business all the time and i think it i think it worked but hopefully hmm. they don't use your speakers for that yeah right exactly <laughs> it will hopefully it won't turn into crowd deterrent system <laughs> yeah exactly or it could turn into a uh, work deterrent system as well 
right. Yeah. So yeah, how are things with you? They're good. Yeah, it's uh, you know things are kind of quieting down for the for the holidays. A lot of people on vacation and stuff. So mm-hmm. which is a good time to be working on some you know still continuing the Redis scaling optimization stuff that I that I talked about last time. So mm-hmm. it's a good time where there's like things are relatively quiet and we can just kind of huddle down and and work on some intense stuff. Yeah, so. how's the Redis stuff going? It's going good. We're still gradually rolling out more and more behind the scenes, testing things out with larger accounts, and it's going well. What we're looking at now is kind of our scaling strategy for Redis itself, because for the most part, our use of Redis has been relatively small in the sense that we can fit it easily on one large server and have enough RAM to fulfill all our uses. And um, now we're looking at this and we're like, okay, if we if we really start using this Redis cluster um, aggressively and start throwing a bunch of data in there, we need to have a strategy for spreading this out amongst mm-hmm. multiple servers. <laughs> so you're going to shard it anyway. Yeah. Although it's it's still, I argue, it's still easier to shard Redis since it's key value than it would be to try to shard your relational data. I think it's, relatively speaking, it's, it's less complicated. Mm-hmm. But it's still an undertaking. And our research so far is kind of showing that there's like not one canonical way to do it, hmm. which is a little bit discouraging. Like I wish that there was like an official way to do Redis clustering from the creator of Redis himself. And right. then we would just use that and everything would be good. But the encouraging thing in our research is that Redis is used by a ton of companies like Twitter. I think as of 2014, all the Twitter home timelines was powered by hmm. Redis. Like hmm. they were caching everything in there and they have like a custom fork of Redis and are doing some custom data types and stuff like we're talking many many terabytes of data so that's encouraging but it seems like a lot of the super aggressive users of redis have, are kind of coming up with their own solutions for sharding them spreading them across you know multiple servers and proxying requests and all that kind of stuff so i think what we've arrived at is it's a library from twitter it's called 2m proxy and it just has an impressively long list of large companies that are using it successfully in production mm-hmm. and we're basically going to set up a bunch of shards on one instance for now. And then as our space requirements grow, we're going to start subdividing that between servers. So we'll put like 32 instances of Redis on one server hmm. or whatever the number is. And then once we outgrow that one server, then we can split it into two and put 16 on one and 16 on the other. And then we'll outgrow that, subdivide again and keep doing that. Why have multiple instances on the same server? Why is that better? It's basically because under the covers, this is using like a key hashing algorithm to determine which shard different keys go into. Mm-hmm. So if you don't set up all your shards from the get-go, then you have to kind of rebalance them and figure out how to reshuffle things into more shards. So if you if you start out with 16, for example, and you decide at some point you need 32, mm-hmm. you have to basically re-index all your data and spread it across 32 as opposed to huh. 16. Does it sound weird to you at all to run multiple instances of a database server on the same box that sounds weird to me it does i mean i i'll be fine with it as long as there's no major performance penalties that we pay as a result of that yeah and i think it actually is potentially going to be a good use of server resources because if i understand this right redis is single threaded and Mm. so i think we'll be able to you know utilize more cores by having gotcha multiple redises on one server and it's also relatively low utilization you know talking about like even twitter's use case there's an article where they're talking about like any given server is using under 1% CPU for, for Redis just because it's it has such low resource requirements to keep hmm. it running. It's just all memory. So 
Hmm, that's so cool. yeah, we'll see how it goes. But that's where we're at right now. Redis is written in C, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty. That's fast. It's efficient. Yeah. That's cool. I wouldn't want to maintain it myself, but that's great that someone is. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever write C? Just nothing much beyond Hello World. Okay. And I've looked at some C extensions before for Ruby things, but mm -hmm. not really enough to wrap my head around them and actually hack on them. <laughs> How I, about uh, you? Well, it was actually my first programming language. Oh, really? Yeah, my, my first like real programming class I took uh, as a, like my, my first computer science course uh, was actually very programming focused, and it was taught in C. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was it was actually great. I mean, it was, it was the class was wonderful. I think it's kind of an interesting choice because it's so close to the metal. Yeah. Which I, so I kind of actually, I think it's a good idea because you, you start to understand memory and how it's laid out and what a string is and things like that at a, at a, a low level. Right. But I had such a mind-blowing experience after spending about a year writing hundreds of for loops and manually managing memory, like allocating right. and freeing memory uh, of s explicit sizes. And then after about a year of that, uh, I picked up a book that, on Ruby and it was that's like, quite a jump yeah and i was like yeah. where is all of the stuff like I, my first like the looking at like an each loop like a, with a block yeah it, i just like couldn't get my head around it because c is very like straight line it's like okay and right. then you enter the for loop and then it's going to loop around this many times and i was like where's the counter how do like what is, how does the value get from here over to here and it, yeah. But then eventually when I sort of figured it out, I was like, this is insanity. I can't believe how much more direct and expressive this is. Yeah, I, I have done actually a little bit of Objective-C playing around with like creating a game for an iPad. I did that, I don't know, maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like just doing memory management and it just made it so much less fun. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Kind of sucks the fun out of programming for me. I mean, it depends on what I'm building, I guess. If I'm working on some you know, extremely efficient low-level algorithm that I would probably want that much control. But if I'm building like, you know, higher level applications where I'm more concerned about user experience, I don't want to be messing with that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, I don't, I don't exactly miss it. I think it was a good first step though. Sure, yeah. So what else is new in Dripland? Well, um, I would say the other thing I've been up to is I've been reading a book um, and it's kind of blowing my mind. Nice, can't wait to hear about this. Yeah, so it's kind of a, one of the business classics. It's called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Mm -hmm. Familiar with it? Uh, I've heard of it. Okay. So it's basically all about the, the technology adoption life cycle. And you can kind of picture a bell curve of different segments of the market. And on the left side, where the small part end of the tail is, there's the, the innovators. And these are like the people who are willing to try anything. They're always on lists for beta products. And, you know, they're they're kind of pushing the industry forward, tinkering with things. They're probably the Google Glass owners, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. those types of folks. Um, and then right next to them is is the um, early adopters. These people are a bit more pragmatic, and they kind of look to the innovators to see what they need to be toying around with, but they're not so early. And then next to them are the early majority. And these are really like, you know, further away from the innovator scale, they want safer products. They want things that, you know, are well tested and have other social proof from people and are proven to be working well. And you can picture along this bell curve, you know, the markets are gradually getting larger. So it's important for a technology startup to kind of start on the left side and gradually progress into larger and larger markets. Mm -hmm. But I guess the whole punchline of the book is that the gaps between these different segments are not equal. So you know, it looks like a bell curve, but there are actually some large gaps in there. And the largest gap is between the uh, early adopters and the early majority. Hmm. 
And mm-hmm. it's it's where a lot of technology companies die because their marketing is focused maybe on the, the early adopters and they're seeing great success with this group, but then they kind of peak out as they kind of saturate that market. And in order to make the leap to the next segment, uh, you have to totally change your marketing. You have to shift it towards like industry proven away from cutting edge. Mm. And it's kind of there's kind of a catch 22 in there where in order to penetrate the early majority, you need to show proof that others within the early majority are using it successfully. But all the only proof you have is that early adopters are using it and the early majority doesn't necessarily care that the early adopters are making good use of it because they have different concerns. Hmm. So it's it's really interesting, particularly because I, I see Drip as kind of in the crossing that chasm phase mm-hmm. where we're really starting to, to penetrate larger markets. You know, especially as we've launched our free plan, we're we're seeing tons of signups, lots of trials, and I'm seeing a gradual shift in the typical type of user of Drip than what we've traditionally had. Mm-hmm. You know, we started out with a lot of a lot of the innovator, early adopter types of, of folks. We see Brennan Dunn out there talking a lot about Drip and kind of the innovative things he's done, mm-hmm. and that's really awesome. But it's an interesting thought experiment to think: How are we going to? What do we need to do on the product side? to poise ourselves for success within the early majority. So I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah. Any, t- any uh, conclusions yet? Well, I think one of them is we have to be really conscious of the objection from folks that Drip is too programmery or too difficult to use, which I do hear that occasionally. Hmm. And I feel like in, in the markets where we've been really successful on the more innovator and early adopter side of things, you know, Drip's user experience is arguably much better than kind of the incumbents in the industry. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still areas we can improve. Like one example is when someone wants to filter by a tag in Drip, a lot of times we present a text box. And your less technical, less programmery user, I guess, would probably prefer to see a drop down there with a list of tags that they can select from. Right. Uh, so that's just a, a small example of minor UX improvements that we can make to make Drip a little bit more user-friendly, a little more palatable to a less technical audience. So we're going to be focusing in a lot of that now that we have a full-time designer on staff kind of dedicated to, to UX things. That's going to be a major focus for us coming into 2017. Interesting. Going over the chasm. Yeah, yeah. Crossing the chasm. Huh. So As you were talking about the people that want like the social proof of other established companies, it reminded me of how you justified partially the choice of Twitter's library the proxy yes. library for Redis. I'm glad you brought that up because I was actually just thinking about that this morning where I'm like thinking about as I'm reading this, I'm trying to put myself into one of these buckets. And, and I like to think that I'm an innovator, early adopter type. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I spot, you know, opportunities and seize them before other people recognize them. Hmm. And I think it's true in some scenarios. But really, I think where it comes to like core competitive advantages of Drip, we're very willing to kind of step outside the norm and do innovative things. But for everything else that's outside of our core competency, mm. I'm actually very safe. You know, so proxying requests between a cluster of Redis servers is not a core competency of Drip. Right. So therefore, I'm going to be probably on the far other side of the bell curve where I'm. I want something that's super battle tested, in use by a bunch of other companies because this is not where we want to be innovating pushing things forward right you know i just i just want a stable solution that's going to work right and you so. don't you don't want to maintain your own custom fork of redis like tw- twitter's doing exactly yeah 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 totally and so i kind of put myself in the shoes of of our potential customers who like a lot of our customers run almost their entire business on drip you know and they're it's like they're one single source of truth for their customer database 
they're piping a bunch of data in. And for these people, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that we've had a bunch of people willing to do that, despite us not having a giant, you know, list of prominent companies to say are using drip. But, you know, just thinking about like, how can we instill that confidence in our potential new customers Mm -hmm. to make them feel confident that they can run their whole business on it? You know, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of trust is required there. Do you have uh, any like efforts underway to like do outbound sales to those larger companies to try to get some of those logos? Yeah, I mean, we're um, the sales team at Lead Pages is actively selling drip. And there's a lot of intriguing deals in the pipeline that I've seen. Cool. Um, I mean, we can already add, we already have a pretty good list of logos that we could display, but I think that's only going to grow. Cool. Um, as sales and sales does more work. Yeah. Awesome. This topic reminds me of a, a sort of, I guess it's an informal, it may, it's probably actually written down somewhere, policy that we have on a new project, the client project. We try to restrict it to one experiment at a time. Mm-hmm. So we'll reach for, like, basically everything should be tried, like proven and tried, except for one piece that we're going to try something different on. Which mm-hmm. you know kind of gets you in a, a sort of scientific mindset. We can tell, okay, this is the change we made. Therefore, what was the result of it? And also lets us continue to find new things and stay a little bit ahead of on the more slightly more aggressive edge of that curve because we want to be aware of these things because sometimes we pick up, we pick up huge wins that then we want to do on all our clients, but is right. not uh, exposing anybody to too much risk. Yeah, I think it, it, a lot of it comes down to risk, risk tolerance, and. Uh... I think for it's healthy for a business in most aspects to be pretty risk averse and to, you know, say like, if we're going to take risks, we're only going to take big risks in a narrow scope and yeah. the rest of it, let's be really safe. Totally. Know? I like it. We have a Trello board full of research experiments that to me is like one of the, like a great sign. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's like a symptom of a great process in place, which is yeah. we're trying new things and documenting whether or not they work. Yeah, and it's like, oh, should we try? And, and sometimes it's, it's it's process. A lot of the times, actually, it's process things. Like, let's not use a, a issue tracker, or let's stop doing standups, or like, there's a examination of like the the sacred cows, or I guess I guess no sacred cows, sure. um, which I think is healthy as well. Yeah, I like it. Cool. So, um, what have I been doing? I've been mostly focusing on this marketing, on hiring a marketing person still, mm-hmm. uh, and I had an interesting experience where. Someone sent me an email that I thought was a really good opening email. He's interested in the position, uh, and I thought it was really good. And so I wanted to share a little bit about it, um, because I think it's a good example of how to go about this. So a lot of people, surprisingly, so we shared that job posting in a bunch of different places, uh, including some job boards like Indeed.com and things like that. And so the applicants that came through those sites, on average, didn't include any custom anything. It was like, click to apply, atta- click to attach your resume, okay, sent. Right. And those are basically like, oh, like pretty easy to reject most of the time. Yeah. Uh, not all of them, but it's, like, it's, it's a great way to not stand out at all. Sure. This person that applied sent me a, I don't know, call it a thousand word email maybe. Wow. And the way he phrased it that I thought was smart was, he said, based off my brief research on your online performance, I came up with some questions that could help directing us in devising a plan moving forward, which I I think is like a great way to to pitch it. It's like, I have some questions and the answers to these questions will help us make a marketing plan. And then for each product, so he, I I don't know where he got this data, some sort of, like he doesn't have access to our actual data, but some sort of like Alexa type service, I assume. Um, And he went and researched and said like things like on form keep, the bounce rate is at 51%. Have you tried this on the landing page 
traffic went up 60% during these months. Do you know what caused it? What effect did that have on the conversion rates? And again, like the numbers are not perfect. The bounce rate isn't 51%, but you know, it's just the, the fact that he went and did some research and then came up with a bunch of questions. Like, there's like 12 more questions along these lines. And yeah. the interesting thing is none of it is like concrete suggestions just about. It's mostly like, how does this fit into the sales funnel? Have you looked into this? Are you aware of why this happened? Have you tried this sort of marketing? Uh, and I just thought it was, it was just a killer email. I read this and I was like, wow, this is, this, if, if the rest of our interactions are this good, like the, this guy's a shoe in basically. Yeah, yeah. So I'm always preaching the value of standing out. And when I compare this email to the, what most people did, it's just like, it's night and day. Right. So props to that person and maybe steal that idea if you're, if you're applying for jobs. Again, and, and like, it's, it's mostly questions. And so yeah. I thought the, like, the way he positioned it was good. It's not like, hey, I want this job. Here's why I'm great. It was like, have you thought about these things? Mm-hmm. And it's like demonstrating his knowledge and expertise kind of indirectly. By saying mm-hmm. like, here are the things I would think about, and here are the thing, the questions that I think are important. Have you thought about these? And some of the stuff was news to me. Some of it was yeah. news because it's not quite accurate because he doesn't have our data. But it was also like, <laughs> there was a spike in traffic during these months, and it was like, you know, I didn't actually dig into why that happened, and I, I haven't looked at the conversion rate during that time period to see like was you know what happened there, and and do we need to go check, tra- track that down? Yeah. So uh, it was it was impressive. Yeah, I think that I think that principle applies in so many different areas. I mean, definitely applying for jobs, but also like if you're at a large company and you're pitching management on on a new project, mm. like go that route. Or if you're a customer and you want to propose a, a feature suggestion, rather than just uh, throwing out an an idea without any kind of thought behind it, I yeah. guess like frame it in a way uh, where you've actually <laughs> done some research, given some thought to it. Yep just increases your likelihood of you know getting listened to i guess so totally the thing that strikes me also is that it often takes not much more effort to stand out in this way right Mm -hmm. like this this email is somewhat involved but it probably only took like an hour yeah and i see this happen again and again where people can stand out with not a huge effort one time i wanted to speak there was a conference in poland called railsbury Mm -hmm. and i really wanted to go to europe and so I knew they were starting to do the talk selection process and I just mailed them a postcard or like a little, a little thing with a ThoughtBot logo on it. And I think I included some sticker, yeah, some stickers and was like, Hey, I just want you to know, I would love to come speak. I think I'd do a good job. I think the conference is going to be awesome. Like, please consider me and mailed it out to them and ended up having to like send it like overnight ish. Cause they were doing the talk selection. Like they basically tweeted like, we're going to this weekend, we're going to choose the talks. And it was like Wednesday. And so I went down to FedEx and I was like, How, can I get this to Krakow, Poland by Friday? And they're like, sure, it's $180. And I was like, damn, but I, <laughs> but I did it uh, and I got selected. Nice. And so like that one happened to cost a lot of money, but like in terms of effort was like pretty small. Right. And who knows if that's exactly what pushed me over the edge, but I, I'm sure it didn't hurt. Yeah. I feel like it's so rare these days that people go the extra step. Mm-hmm. And- I think the same is true. Also, I I thought of another example, like if you're relatively new into an industry and you're trying to find mentorship or Mm. get advice from somebody who's, you know, pretty prominent in in the industry, like, you know, if you're going to cold email that person, you should learn about them a little bit. You should be able to demonstrate that you've done your homework. And then, you know, if you ask for advice, then you should follow up and let the person know how you've implemented that advice and just going that extra mile and making someone actually feel like they haven't wasted their time on you is like so powerful yeah so. we almost should maybe consider doing like a an episode on how to cold email people 
Yeah. That's like, <laughs> I get a big mix of questions. And like, I, I like getting emails from people. And I, I keep meaning to mention this, but like, by far, the most common cold email I get is really nice and pleasant. Like, sometimes people will just cold email me and say nice things or like tweet at me and say nice things. And like, that's awesome. Like, it's, it's always a highlight of my day. Sure. So, like, props to everyone for that. But every so often, there's some, like, I'll get a question and it's like just so insanely broad. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, you know, there's definitely a, a variability in the, the questions I get. And sometimes it's like, oh, this is such a bad question. Like, like, you can't possibly get value. Like, neither of us can possibly get good value from this exchange. Right. But that'd be, that'd be an interesting topic to get into. Yeah, totally. I agree. Cool. Well, I know it's honestly, it's a, it's a slow time of year for us. I think that might, uh, that might be kind of it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, it's good talking to you as always. I think too. Yeah. I won't catch you until after the holidays. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but keep it real. Do good things. Cross the chasm. <laughs> I'm working on crossing it. <laughs> All right. Awesome. I'll talk to you next time. All right. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom, the Irish car bomb, Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes of this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 223. Thanks for listening.